All right, if you'll turn in your Bibles this morning to Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 34. So I think that I've told you before, when you read the Old Testament and you look at the life of Israel, you can see a spiritual type for your own personal walk. Because in Israel's walk, we see a people that are chosen by God, that follow God, but then things get in the way and they begin to worship idols. They begin to get away from God and get further and further away from God. And if you look back one chapter, there was a king. Uh, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem, but did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places. So when we look at the, the kings of Israel and Jerusalem at that time, you see some kings were bad, some kings were good, but when they went bad, it was bad for all of the people. And they began to worship other gods. They began to lift up altars, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, the Bible says. Verse 5, And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven into two courts of the house of the Lord. And he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hemnon. It goes bad from everyone all the way down to the children. And he also he observed times and used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with a familiar spirit and with wizards. He wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a carved image, the idol which he made in the house of God. So not only was he, con- he wasn't content to worship other gods, to worship other idols. He put one right in the temple that Solomon built, right in the house of God. Of which God has said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Neither will I any more remove the foot of Israel from out of the land which I have appointed for your fathers, so that they will take heed to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So into this world, a child is born. And his name is Josiah. Turn to chapter number 34. There was another king, but he kind of didn't count because he didn't last very long. But in chapter 34, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem one and 30 years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his father, and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, that'd be at 16, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David. Let's pray. Amen. All right, so it starts off, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places, the groves, the carved images, and the molten images. And... This morning, I want to look at how to have revival. And as I said in the prayer, revival first starts with the people of God. It first starts when you're willing to turn to God, and it first starts when you're willing to do some certain things. And then it begins to spread to other people because then they see God in your life. They see God working through you. And that's the way he set it up. God could have come down. He could have sent his son again, but that didn't work, right? They crucified him. 
God could have sent you some image. He could have put handwriting on the wall, and I guarantee you, you wouldn't want to see God put the handwriting on the wall. That didn't work out good for those that saw it. But people say, well, prove to me there is a God. I say that when you look around and you see the evil in this world and you see the purity that God talks about and you see the destruction that takes place when God, when people leave God's law, you see God in this world. Does that make sense? So over here in 2 Chronicles, it said he began to seek after the God of David, his father. Now, there's some things that there's some seven steps to revival, and that's what I want to look at today. One of the first steps or the first step, is that you've got to seek after God. He began to seek after the God of David, his father. So for for there to be a revival, there must first be a reaching out to God. A lot of people get saved, and they're just content to be saved, or maybe they're not even looking for God. You can go your whole life not looking for God, not reaching out to God. If there's going to be revival, you can't sit around and just complain and say, well, God needs to do, God needs to do, God needs to do. The first thing that you need to do is in your heart, you need to seek your closer relationship with the Lord. You need to draw closer to God. Now, when we look at Josiah, because later on, we're going to see that he learned some things that he didn't know. But right now, all that he knows is his fathers, the previous kings, were worshiping other gods. He knows something about Solomon's temple, then he knows that that altar, that idol, should not be in Solomon's temple. And that's all that he knows. You know, someone that gets saved, all that they know is that Jesus died for their sins. They might not know the doctrine of justification or sanctification or regeneration or adoption. They might not understand all of those things, but they understand that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. And that's when their life begins to change. There's a reaching out for God. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And James 4.8 says, To draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. And he also says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. If you want to draw closer to God... You need to draw closer to him. And I've I've given the illustration over and over. You get away from God, get away from God, get away from But when you begin to draw closer to God, he begins to draw closer to you. So number one is that there needs to be a reaching out for God. Number two, there needs to be a removing. Because when you begin to seek after God, you begin to realize some of the things that are wrong in your life. A sinner that comes to the Lord, you don't just get saved and then go on with your life. But God begins to show you things through the Holy Spirit in your own life that need to come out. Josiah didn't have the book of the law. We find out later on that they found it. But Josiah didn't have the book of the law, but he knew that these altars were wrong. He knew that they were putting other gods before God. He might have only known the first commandment. We don't know. But he took care of what he knew. God will show you things. I've talked to people and I've, I've heard questions about, well, what about this? What about the Nephilim? What about this and that? And I pointed y'all to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children that we may do them. So many people get hung up on, 
what about all of this? And it's like, well, what about you? What about the man over in the woods or over in the jungle that's never heard about God? What about you who's sitting here and knows about God and knows, about, knows that he sent his son, Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with that? Josiah knew that God wasn't being honored, so he began to purge all of the idols, all of the altars. It says uh, in the 12th year, this is when he's 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And they break, verse number four, and they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence. And he, he wasn't content for somebody to come back and report to him. He made sure it was done. In your own life, there may be some altars that are built up. There may be some things that you put before God, and God may show them to you. I've thought time and again about listing altars, but the list is personal. What has God shown you in your own heart? What is that besetting sin? What is that altar within your own heart that if that's taking place, that comes before God? That's something that you ask and pray about yourself. But he tore down the altars. And the images that were on the high above them, he cut down. And the groves and the carved images and the molten images, he break in pieces and made dust of them. And strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. And he burnt the bones of the priests upon the altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, unto Naph- even unto Naphtali and their mattocks round about. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves, he had beaten the graven images into powder and cut down all the idols throughout all the lands of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. And on all this time, because the next verse says in the 18th year, so six years of purging. You know what? It's going to take you a while to get rid of some of those altars in your life. It can take a while. But God wants you to put him first in your life. So there's a reaching out to God, and then there's a removing of some things. But there's a repairing. This might be a quick sermon. I say that, and then I go on for an hour. But there's a repairing. Look at uh, verse number 8. Now, in the 18th year of his reign, this is after six years, removing altars and removing all that. And I just, I just wonder, did it take him that long to get rid of all the altars? And he looked at it and he said, you know, we got rid of the altars, but we haven't built up God's altar. We haven't repaired God's house. We've gotten rid of the other gods, but we haven't repaired God's house. We tore down the groves. But God's house, the doors are broken, and it's beat up, and it's been abused, and it's sitting over there unused. You know, in your own Christian life, you can get rid of things. You can turn to legalism, and you can say, I've got this out of my life, and I've got this out of my life, and I'm doing right in this area, and I'm doing right in this area. But I can tell you, a lot of people that do that, they're just as cold and empty on the inside, and their temple is still defiled on the inside. When Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he saw them, he said, you whitest sepulchers. It's like you go down to Galveston and you see the mausoleums down there, or you see the, the, the little temples they build in themselves and put the coffins in, you know, because we have to bury them above ground. and They'll still float out and come at you in a hurricane. But they, they're all pretty on the outside, and they're, all, they, they're white and clean. 
brand new stone and all that carved and pretty looking, but inside are dead men's bones. So you can take care of all that on the outside and you can be right and you can, can, can look great to everybody else like the Pharisees did. I mean, everything was nice. They had the phylacteries down at the bottom of their skirt. They did everything. They didn't soil themselves with people, the beggar on the street or anybody. They didn't soil themselves and they separated themselves. I was listening to somebody talk about Martin Luther this week. You know, Martin Luther was the German reformer. He was the one that nailed the 95 Theses up on the door of the church house. He was the one that started the Reformation because it got everybody to looking at what the priests and the monks were doing. And the monks would separate themselves from the world. And they would go off and they would live in a cloister away from the world, away from the sin and the dirt of the world. But you know, inside those monasteries, the evil that went on in there, the parties that went on, the things that went on in those monasteries would make your hair curl. If you ever read Chinnike, uh, what was it, 57 years at the church at Rome or 20 years at the church at Rome, I don't know, uh, Chinnike, he was, a, he was a Canadian, but he wrote about some of the things that went on in the, in the, within the church. Because they'd separated themselves from the world, but it's hard to separate yourself from yourself. And Martin Luther had tried that. He had separated himself from the world in the monastery, but he then he saw the evil that was inside the monastery. And he began to realize that that sin that's in people, but the grace that Jesus Christ provides. And that gets a little deeper than the subject of this sermon. But you got to understand that sometimes people will take away the altars. They won't worship other gods, but they won't do anything about repairing the house of God, repairing your fellowship with the Lord. So it says in uh, verse number eight, now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah and Messiah, the governor of the city and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder to repair the house of the Lord. And when they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites that kept the doors had gathered of the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim and all the remnant of Israel and all of all Judah and Benjamin. And they returned to Jerusalem and they put in the hand of the workmen that had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they gave it to the workmen that wrought in the house of the Lord to repair and amend the house, even to the artificers and the builders gave they it to buy hewn stone and timber for couplings and to floor the house which the kings of Judah had destroyed. And men did the work faithfully, and the overseers of them were Jaeth and Obadiah, the sons of the Levites, of the sons of Merari, and Zechariah and Meshullam, of the sons of the Kohathites, to set it forward, and other of the Levites, all that could skill of instruments of music. So it's not enough to remove the altars in your life if that's all you do, then you'll constantly think about what you're giving up was another point I wanted to make. If all you do is quit doing something, then you'll tend to focus on that something that you're giving up. And you find that in addiction. If somebody gets addicted to alcohol and all they do is give it up, then they start thinking about how they gave up that drink and they start to stare at that bottle or they start to stare at those drugs, or they start to wonder about You have to replace it with something. 
you have to put something back into your life. So there has to be a replacing, a repair of the broken things, broken altars, broken fellowship, and broken worship. When you begin to repair the house of God, when you begin to repair the temple, which is repairing the inside, repairing your spiritual relationship with God, you're not just working on the outside, but you're letting God work on the inside, and you're beginning to clean up your spiritual life. So there's a reaching out, there's a removal of the altars, there's a repairing of the house of the Lord. And then what happens as you begin to repair the house of the Lord, you, you ever gone to fix a shed or gone to clean up a shed? You go out there and you, you move things aside and you see the rot on the wood and you see other things and, and you might discover something. I mean, I forgot all about that. You look over there and it's like, well, that's, that's Megan's when, when, from when she was little. Why do we still have that? And as they began to, to clean up the house of God, as you begin to repair the temple, God will begin to reveal himself through his word and in your life. So once Josiah got rid of the altars and began to repair the house of God, he then found the word of God. This wasn't just the God of a long dead king or of a people that got to see the miracles of God in their life. God revealed his word long buried in the temple. Look at uh, verse number 14. So they're repairing the house, and in verse number 14, and when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan carried the book to the king and brought the king back word again, saying, All that was committed to thy servants, they do it. And they have gathered together the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hands of the overseers and to the hand of the workmen. And then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath given me a book. And Shaphan read it. Before the king. As you begin to draw closer to God, God's going to reveal things in His Word. One of the great joys of my life is talking to a friend that's getting closer to God. He's, he's, he's drawing back closer to God and He's reading things and He's sending me texts and He's asking me questions. And to see somebody and He's just picking up on things. And you, it's just the joy. Of knowing. He's seeing it for the first time, a lot of these things, you know. And God's just beginning to reveal things to him. So when you begin to draw closer to God, God begins to reveal things. There's a lot of people standing outside the temple, unrepaired. Maybe they've gotten rid of some altars. They got saved. They cleaned up their life. But they're still standing outside the temple. They refuse to go in, to repair it, to clean it up, to, clean it, to work on their spiritual relationship with God. And when you do that, the Holy Ghost, you're no longer quenching the Holy Ghost. You begin to read God's word and it begins to open up to you and he begins to show you. So one of the things blocking you from revival, if we call it that, from revival in yourself is not drawing closer to God and not allowing God to show you things in his word. So many times we'll, we'll think about a passage in the Bible. Oh, I know about David. Oh, I know about this. I know about that. But when somebody gets to really studying God's word, it's like, well, I didn't know David did that. I didn't know Psalm 51 was talking about that event with Bathsheba. I didn't realize 
that when Moses was talking to the rock, that rock was Christ. I didn't realize that water is a type of the Holy Spirit. I didn't realize that the life of the flesh is in the blood and God gave it to us on the altar to make an atonement for our soul. Some of those things that you might not realize because you don't get into God's word. So God revealed his word to him. And look what happened. Because the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Over in verse number 19. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the law that he rent his clothes. He took the book from out of the temple. He read it to the king. And as the king heard these words and he heard God's commandments in it. And he heard God's conditional promises that he would bless them as long as they served him, as long as they worshipped him. But if they turned to other gods, he would, he would smite them with blight. He would, he would judge them. And Josiah is sitting there and he's listening to this. And he's thinking about all of those altars that he tore up. And he's thinking about all those altars that he ground to stone. And what he'd, taken, he'd done all of this work. And there's a lot of people, I've done a lot of work in my life. I'm doing good. I've cleaned up. But then God begins to show him how the law was broken in so many ways. And them as a people were facing God's judgment because of what they had done. Now, Josiah was only working with what he had. But then God begins to show him more. And it led him to repentance. So there's a revelation of God's word. And there's a change that takes place in Josiah. Because when you look back at verse number three, it says he began to seek after the God of David, his father. And when you get saved, you're learning about Jesus who died for your sins. But you're you in Sunday school and other places, you learn about the God of the Christians, the God of the Jews, the God of this and that. And he's not a personal God to a lot of people. And even for Christians, he's he's the God I worship. But, you know the preacher's closer or my grandmother's closer to God or he's, he's the God of my grandmother is kind of how you look at it because you don't have that close personal relationship. He died on the cross for you, but you don't have that per- close personal relationship with him. And there's a change that takes place. He found the word of God and this wasn't just the God of a long dead king or a people who got to see the miracles of God in their life. God revealed his word long buried in the temple in the same place throughout the years, neglected, unwanted, unlooked for. And then he comes to the point. He said he began to seek after the God of David, his father, in verse 3, and look at verse number 8. It says, now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Ahaziah, and the son of Joaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord, his God. It was a personal God to him. Some people are content to dress up the temple. And some people stop there. Some people stop at reaching out to God. Some people stop at removing the altars. And they don't repair the temple. Some people stop at repairing the temple. But when you begin to draw closer to God, when he begins to show you things, he becomes a personal God. A.W. Tozer put it like this a lot better than I'm doing right now. He said, current evangelicalism has laid the altar 
and divided the sacrifice into parts, but now seems satisfied to count the stones and rearrange the pieces with never a care that there is not a sign of fire on the top of lofty Carmel. And Tozer is referring to Mount Carmel where Elijah was up there and the big challenge took place between Elijah and the 500 prophets of Baal. I love this illustration. I wear you all out with it. But the picture that Tozer is painting is that they build the altar to God. They cleaned up, they repaired the temple, and they built the altar to God, and they take the sacrifice, and they lay it out, and they spread it out, and they get it all set up on there, and they start looking at the stones and start rearranging. I think about our church sometimes. Sometimes I'm over there doing administrative things, and I'm thinking I'm just looking at the stones. With never a care that there's no fire upon the altar. Because there was two altars that day. There was the altar to Baal, and there was the altar to God. And up until a certain point, there was no difference between the two altars. Aside from the fact that Elijah had them pour water all over it and soak the wood and all of that. But up to that point, there's only there's two altars and there's no difference between them. You know, in religion, you can worship God. One altar looks the same as the other. And you hear a lot of people say, well, I believe all religions are the same. They all point to the same God. But there was a difference that day on Mount Carmel. And that difference was the fire that was on the altar because the fire represented God's acceptance of what was going on. He said, laid the altar, divided the sacrifice into parts, but now seems satisfied to count the stones and rearrange the pieces with never a care that there is not a sign of fire upon the top of lofty Carmel. But God be thanked there are a few who care. They are those who, while they love the altar and delight in the sacrifice, are yet unable to reconcile themselves to to the continued absence of fire. They desire God above all. They are athirst to taste for themselves the piercing sweetness of the love of Christ, about whom all the holy prophets did write and the psalmist did sing. Or as somebody put it this morning, the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ. They're content in their walk. They're content to go on as they are. But then there's others that desire more of Christ. When they read about the peace that passeth all understanding, how do I get that, Lord? Psalm 42, 1 says, As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. What a hollow statement when you're just content in your relationship with the Lord. When you're just satisfied where you are, I'm saved and I get to go to heaven. In this, in this church, as, this pre, as your preacher, my desire is to draw up that thirst. Not because I'm up here preaching dry, but because I want you to desire Jesus Christ. I want you to desire that relationship in your life. I want you to leave these doors and it not just be some empty thing that you go out to and say, well, that's an hour of my time. We can go to lunch now. But I'd like to draw out that thirst and that hunger for God. The only way I didn't know to do it is giving God's word. When Moses met God in the burning bush, he asked a question. Moses said unto God, verse 13, 313, Exodus 3.13, Behold, when I come, am come unto the children of God, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? 
When Moses met God at the burning bush, he said, the God of your fathers, because that's all that he knew while he was in Egypt. And the God of his mother and the God of his father, his mother had had him on his knee and she told him about Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, and Jacob and how Joseph saved them in Egypt and how they came to be there. And he heard all about the God of his fathers. He didn't know him personally, though. You know something that will draw you real close to God and make it personal? (laughs) It's going through some adversity and seeing God work in your life. When they came out on the other side of the Red Sea, the Red Sea had parted, but before that they were pinned between the Red Sea and the Egyptians. And I know I give this illustration all the time, but when they came through the Red Sea, they went from the Egyptians about to kill them to going to the other side and watching those seas close up on the Egyptians. And in Exodus chapter 15, Moses sang after seeing God work, And God save them and deliver them. They sang, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him in habitation, my father's God, and I will exalt him. He was a personal God. He was Moses' God, the God of Moses. Don't be content to rebuild the altar. Call out to God to accept the offering so that others can know your God is real. In 1 Kings, you don't have to go here, but 1 Kings 18, chapter 36 and 39 says, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. See how this starts out? Lord God of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. In other words, Lord, show them that you are God. You are the one to be worshipped. You're better than these prophets of Baal. You're better than the God that they claim. God, show them so that they can know you too. He says, uh, Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord He is God. The Lord, he is God. So when we look at seven steps of revival, there's the reaching out. There's the removing. There's the repairing of the temple, the removing of the altars in your heart, the repairing of the temple, your relationship with the Lord, the revelation that God gives you, that he is God and revealing his word to you, that you, you move past the point of him being God to him being my God. You know, that's one time in the Bible when it's all right to say he is my God. That's one time when it's preferable to say my, my, mine. All things belong unto the Lord. But when you can say freely, he's my God. There's the revealed word and then... There's repentance that takes place. 
Second Chronicles 34, 19. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the law that he rent his clothes. Look over in verse 27. He humbled himself. You know, there's a lot of times people will stop at this step. They might, they might reach out to God. They might remove the altars. They might repair the temple and get the revelation of God. God will reveal some things to them. But when God does it, pride can get in the way. I think a lot, leaving, leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, and he, they said, run to the mountains. And he said, oh, not so, my Lord. There's a little city over here. Is it not a little city? It's just a little city. He wants to go back to the city, the same place where everything wrong had happened. And people stop at this point. God shows them something in their heart, say, you need to change this. These are personal God, but they'll put up a battle there at that front and say, oh, not so, Lord. Over here, isn't it just a little city? But uh, Josiah didn't do that. Over in verse 27, God said, because thine heart was tender and thou didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof and humblest thyself before me and didst rent thy clothes, and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. God's looking for a humble and a contrite heart, a soft heart. The hard heart says, no, I'm fine. I'm doing good where I'm at. The soft heart says, well, Lord, that hurts. And repents before God. I don't want to do that again, Lord. The soft heart will say, Lord, please save me. Stop me from this. When that happens, when you're humble before God, when there's true contrition, remember David said over in Psalm 51, he said, and I'm going to paraphrase, he said, you don't want sacrifices, but the sacrifices of God are a contrite heart, a broken heart. Once, you got, once you're at that point, that's when God can use you. And we're talking about steps of revival. Once you reach a point where God can show you something and you're willing to repent and you're willing to change things, there becomes a redistribution because God is able to use you now. So he didn't just hang on to those revelations for himself between the king and the priests. They were the ones that got to see the word of God. They didn't have a Bible on every street corner. But he redistributed the word of God so that the people could know God is not the God of their king or the God of their fathers, but they could know God as their God also. God begins to use you. When we're talking about revival, we're not just talking about a revival in people's hearts. But what were you praying for originally? You're looking at the world around you and saying, Lord, this is happening and this is happening. Lord, we pray for revival. We pray for people to turn to you. In order for that to take place, there has to be a redistribution. And I only use that word because it's an R. But there has to be somebody to give them the word. Second Chronicles 34, 29 through 30. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small, 
And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. So he spread the word. And in verse 31, and the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And the last thing, and we're going to get to it in a minute, is a rededication. But first I want you to look at Ezra chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. But over in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, this is after the 70 years in captivity. Because what we read in Kings and Chronicles are kings turning away and, and the, whole, the people worshiping idols and, and, and going after what other nations are doing. They're going after the things of the world instead of the things of God. And after a period of time, God said, I'm through. And he let the Babylonians come in and take them. And then he let the Persians come in and take the Babylonians. But after 70 years, God had prophesied that King Darius would allow them to rebuild the temple. And over in the book of Ezra, you have Ezra the priest. And they are rebuilding the temple of God. They're reinstituting the worship and the practice. And God's word, once again, even after Josiah, God's word, once again, was kind of pushed aside, was put away. But Ezra 7.10 says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Ezra was preparing himself to teach others. And then over in Nehemiah, when they're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, we see over in chapter 8, verse 1, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. <clears throat> and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And this is another revival that was taking place because there was many years in between. And in verse number eight, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand. And then verses nine through 10 and Nehemiah, which is the Tirshatha and Ezra, the priest, the, the, the scribe. And the Levites that taught the people said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the Lord. And there was a repentance there that took place. Then he said, then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord, our Lord. Neither be you sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I got one more thing. And this is by a preacher, Alan Carr. And from a sermon of his, the traits of a successful soul winner. When revival takes place in your own heart and when you get to the point of distributing God's word, of leading other people to Christ, that's when you begin to see revival spread like a fire because this person and that person and that person and that's what true revival is. Alan Carr said, I've read again this week the wonderful story about Ed Kimball, a Sunday school teacher. He won a young fellow to the Lord and got that one stirred up. The new convert got the secret of the Lord's power upon his life. He became the well-known D.L. Moody. The story says that after evangelizing America, D.L. Moody started on England. There in England, Frederick B. Meyer, or F.B. Meyer, heard his message. 
One of the illustrations that Moody used did not at first stir Brother Meyer. Then one of his Sunday school teachers came to him and said, Brother Meyer, <clears throat> the illustration that the preacher gave in our church the other day stirred my girls so much that there's been a lot of weeping and confession and testimony. We're sure that the Holy Spirit has come among us and we have had an experience in our class that you won't believe. F.B. Meyer was so affected by the testimony of that teacher and those girls that he got off by himself and soon it began to grip him in the same manner. His ministry began to open up and spread and as it did, he was invited to come to America. He came and went to Furman University to preach. One young fellow in the student body had decided to quit the ministry and go back to a secular job. But the message F.B. Meyer was giving was given with such fervor and flame that the young fellow stepped out came forward and renewed his vow to his calling, and he became the great R.G. Lee. Now, you might not know these names, but they'd be good names to know if you're interested in revival. Then F.B. Meyer went on to preach to, at another location. In that service, a young fellow caught fire and began to evangelize. His meetings spread out all over the areas of New England and the middle Atlantic coast until they were bulging at the seams. J. Wilbur Chapman was set on fire of God through the preaching of F.B. Meyer began to stir up the whole northeastern coast. Then, because of Chapman's preaching, he was invited to speak at a certain place. His ministry was changing, and he needed someone to move in on those citywide crusades that he was holding. Someone said, the man you want is the young convert, Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday influenced by J. Wilbur Chapman, got into the ministry and went to Charlotte, North Carolina. There, a group of laymen got so inspired and so stirred up that they organized a committee to invite other evangelists back. One invited was Mordecai Ham from Louisville, Kentucky. He preached in a meeting and Billy Graham got saved. Y'all know him, right? Billy Graham became a renowned evangelist around the world, all because Edward Kimball, one nobody, won one other nobody, and started a series of dominoes falling that ended up with millions saved in Moody's ministry, hundreds of thousands in F.B. Myers' ministry, hundreds of thousands more in Chapman's ministry, hundreds of thousands more in Lee's ministry, and hundreds of thousands more in Graham's ministry, all because one fella won one soul to Christ. And the last point is rededication. What do you do with what God's shown you? Because he's been speaking to your heart about something. And this is the time. 